are in a series right now. Uh, we're in a series called Ancient Cliff Notes. And, uh, and today's going to be different than what I had originally planned. So if you were here last week, I, I'm sorry. I told you last week that we were going to talk about Jonah today. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, Tuesday, this, this Tuesday night uh, when the sundown is, is, starts Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the most, is the most important Jewish holiday of the year. Uh, it's, it's, it's the Day of Atonement. Um, and... <clears throat> And the book of Jonah has a lot of real, has a, is very connected to Yom Kippur, and I, I wanted to make that connection for you. But uh, the more I was studying that, um, the more I was studying all that today, and I was studying th- th- this week, this passage, I realized I, I need to do a different book today. So the book we're going to actually do today is the book of Hosea. And uh, so Hosea uh, is a very, very strange book. And so we're going to do Hosea today. Tentatively, I don't want to speak for sure what we're going to do because I've been changing it a little bit, but tentatively we'll do Ruth next week and then probably Jonah either the week after that or we'll do Jonah uh, after the mission stuff. So we'll, we'll let you know about all that. Uh, but Hosea is today. And now the book of Hosea, uh, it, it's quite possibly the most complex. It's, it, uh, for, it's for sure the most complex of these three, of Jonah, Ruth, and Hosea that we're going to do. It's the most complex. It's the longest. The book of Hosea is 14 chapters long, so even cliff notes on 14 chapters is not going to be quite as short as some of the cliff notes are, and it's by far, it's the most complex. Um, it's the first book of what's considered to be the minor prophets uh, in the Bible, and uh, this book is filled with prophecies that really, quite frankly, we're going to barely be able to even scratch the surface on today. We just can't get into the entire thing. Uh, it describes... Israel's unfaithfulness uh, toward God, uh, and then it constantly it keeps pointing to the fact that Israel's about to be taken over by Assyria, which they are. Uh, that's, that's, that really did end up happening. So uh, now we're talking about the same Assyria who would eventually take over them is the same Assyria that where Nineveh is, where God said go to Nineveh and preach to Assyria. And that all makes Jonah a whole lot more significant, understanding who Assyria was, who the Ninevites were, what they were doing to Israel when God called them there. So we're going to get into that later on. But they were, they were just raining terror on the people of Israel, and it was only going to get worse before it got better. But today, we're really going to focus on just the overall theme of the book of Hosea. Uh, we're going to think, talk about the life of Hosea, talk about his really interesting marriage, uh, and, uh, and what makes it so significant. Uh, it's very strange, but, but God does something very different in this instance than he does with anybody else, and that's kind of what we're going to spend our time on today. So uh, we're going to talk about it, and then most likely after church is over, you'll probably keep talking about it. Uh, you're probably going to have lots of questions. You'll probably come to me with questions. You'll probably go home and have questions. It's just one of those stories. So let's begin by looking at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. This is what it says. It says, uh, chapter, so this is kind of the way that the Bible frames it, so I figure we'll frame it here too. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, this is what the Lord said to Hosea. And this is super screwed up. He says, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he, being Hosea, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaine, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now let's pray. Jesus, Lord, as we start to just sort of tackle this passage that's just loaded and this, this book that just doesn't make any sense to us when we read it uh, with human eyes and not uh, being able to put ourselves in your world, uh, it's just sort of, God, why would you do that? But Lord, Lord, there's a purpose in everything that you do, Jesus. 
And we, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you've uh, given us uh, the ability uh, through the Holy Spirit to understand what you're trying to communicate uh, for us here today through these ancient words. Uh, and we just ask right now that you would be here and you would be evident, Lord, as we navigate hard topics, Lord, that you would give grace to everybody in this room, that you would give grace to me as I speak, uh, that uh, everybody here would give grace to me as, uh, as we try to lay it out. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, Holy Spirit, and that everything that you'd have me to say, I would say just that. And let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. We love you so much. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we all say and pray. Amen. Okay, so this is going to be, this is going to be, a, we've got a lot to cover. To understand the depth, okay, of the backstory to this book and why this is happening, you first have to understand the Ten Commandments, okay? Because to you and to me, most likely we grew up uh, thinking of the Ten Commandments as like this poster that was on the wall, these two tablets, and on the top of it it says Ten Commandments, right? Uh, this is rules that God has given us, and if we do not follow these rules, then God is going to attack us. He's going to destroy us if we don't do this stuff. That's kind of the way that we, most people were raised to understand that. But that is not at all what the Ten Commandments are. Not even close. The literal translation of the word Ten Commandments, what we translate as that, actually is just simply the Ten Words. Okay? The ten words. If you were to look at it in Hebrew, uh, it's the word davar, and it means words. If you were to look to it at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's dekalagos, the ten words. And what the, the Hebrew people whom this was given to in the first place, what they believed the Ten Commandments to be was a ten-worded ketubah. Okay? A ketubah in the Jewish culture was a marriage contract. It was the terms to their marriage. And they would lay these terms out in advance, and then they would walk in these terms from here on out throughout their marriage. And so the very first thing that we get when we read the Ten Commandments is actually what the Jewish people still consider the first commandment, even though we think it's kind of just like an introduction. It's kind of the way that the Protestant teaches it. But it starts by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Now, this little bit before you get into what seem like rules is actually really, really, really important. Because God starts by saying to Israel, just remember this, guys. I'm the one who did this for you. I'm the one who brought you out. Always remember where you came from, okay? Always remember why you're not there anymore because I gave you grace. It's all Grace, I pulled you out of something awful, and I've given you everything that I am. That's a marriage. A marriage is I'm giving everything that I am to you. We are now in this together. That's what a marriage is. But think about this, right? Because we like to think of it as rules, but like the Israelites had been in slavery for 430 years. They didn't ever get a day off. And then suddenly, in these terms of their new marriage, this, you know, this beautiful thing that says, now you get one day off, one day where you don't work, one day where it's just you and me. It's a date night. It's the two of us together, right? The first, the first two, uh, what do they say? It says, no gods before me. You'll have no, you should not make any idols. It says, no, in this relationship, it's just you and me. It's not going to be other gods. There's not going to be other people that you are with. You're not going to do that. In this relationship, we take care of our family. We don't hurt each other. We don't rob each other. We don't kill each other. We don't do that to one another. We live our lives out of the love of God. It was a ketubah. It's not hard if you read the Old Testament 
Because you might hear, like, I've never heard that before. But if you read the Old Testament, just like through the whole thing in the relationship with Israel, it's not hard to see that the writers all spoke of the relationship between God and Israel as a marriage. That's always the way that they defined it. Uh, All the way down to when they talked about the divorce. Jeremiah actually says this. He says that, that God said through Jeremiah, he says, because they were so adulterous so many times, faithless Israel, I had to send Israel away with a certificate of divorce. God's saying they broke the marriage covenant. Now we have to get divorced. So God, who rescued Israel, who brought them out of the house of slavery, who just wants a relationship with them. He's described throughout the Old Testament as a husband whose bride has just been incredibly unfaithful, who lives however she wants, who runs off with whoever she wants, who doesn't care what the terms are, just breaks them over and over and over again. And that's the truth if you read it. Israel, just time and time and time again, runs away from God. They even ask to be back in slavery. They complain. They don't trust God. They build idols. They don't do what God tells them to do. And that is the whole, that is the story woven throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Because truthfully, that's the story of us. That's who we are. We are people who, just like Israel, are recklessly pursued by the amazing love of God. Of a God who literally has given up everything for us. He has sacrificed everything for us. Yet time after time after time again, we live our lives as if what he did for us doesn't even matter to our lives. That's the way that we live a lot. Now, Hosea. Hosea was a prophet. The role of a prophet changed when you get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, it, it changes a lot. But in the Old Testament, the the, uh, the prophet literally spoke for God. In Hebrews, it says that uh, in the days of old, in the Old Testament, prophets, that's how God spoke. He had to speak through the prophets, okay? But in the New Testament, he speaks through his son, okay? So in the Old Testament, it would typically start, uh, when it comes to Isaiah, when it comes to Jeremiah, whenever it comes, it would typically start by saying something like, the word of the Lord came to this person. So in this case, it's the word of the Lord came to Hosea. That's, that's the, how the book starts. That's Hosea 1.1. So basically, God is telling Hosea, Hosea, I'm going to give you something that I don't give a lot of people. I don't make a lot of people prophets, but I'm going to make you a prophet. I'm going to give you the authority to speak on my behalf, to literally speak for me. But he throws a curveball to Hosea here because he says this. He says, but before you can speak for me, first you have to understand me. So God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. Someone that he knew had been with many, many, many other men. Someone he knew was not going to be faithful to him even in this marriage. Someone that he knew was going to run away. He says, Hosea, give up the dream of that perfect marriage. Give it up. I have something very different from you. And then, Hosea, and only then, after you do that, Will you actually be able to speak on my behalf? Because then you will truly understand what it is that I went through and what it is had been done to me. You will understand what I'm going through now as Israel continues to be unfaithful time and time again. So, guys, Israel's relationship with God was so screwed up that he had to assign a prophet to go marry a prostitute just to get hurt so that he could understand the type of pain that God was feeling, and then he could speak on behalf of God. Now, to set this up a little bit more, 
I know this, this is, this is going to be a little bit more complex than a lot of this series is, but this is just the way this book is. To set this up a little bit more, I want us to remember what we've been talking about when we talk about mercy, okay? It's a big theme around here, and I've been beating it to the ground lately, but it, in the Beatitudes, right, it's Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. They shall receive mercy. So mercy is actually, it's the fifth Beatitude. It's the only one that circles back on you. It's the only one that it gives you the exact same thing that you give. So you receive mercy when you give mercy. Mercy is the Greek word eleos, and what it means is it means to have active compassion. It means that you see the world through somebody else's eyes, and then you act accordingly. Like you look at the world through the eyes of somebody who has a need, and you think, well, what would I do if this were me in that need? That's what mercy is, seeing it through that perspective, rather than seeing it through your own eyes. Because if you look at it through your own eyes, your eyes are very judgmental. And the odds are, you're way more likely if you look at somebody through your own eyes to give them what they deserve. But that's not mercy. So for Hosea, this must have felt a little bit backwards. It was basically like, I have to empathize with you, God. I have to see the world through your eyes. Isn't it supposed to kind of be the other way around? Why do I have to give up this enormous part of my life, this thing that's so significant? Why do I have to give that up? But that's what God asks of Hosea to do. So God calls Hosea tells him to marry a woman of whoredom. Then Hosea goes, and he marries Gomer. Now, we're not going to get into some of the later prophecies. Some we will, but not a lot, because there's just too much in there, and I want to share the story with you. But the first thing that's recorded uh, is very prophetic, is that Homer and, uh, Hosea and Gomer, Homer, Hosea and Gomer have three children. And the Lord tells them to name their kids, and he gives them really disturbing names. The first one is Jezreel. And he says, in a little while, I'm going to punish Israel. He's like, I'm coming down on you, Israel, so name your kid that. Then they have a daughter, and they name her No Mercy. No Mercy. That's your name. Because God says Israel's going to get what it deserves. And this is harsh. You're going to get what you deserve. Then they had another son, and they named him Not My People. Saying, you're not my people. <laughs> Like, that's really creative. Like, this is not my people. Israel is not my people. Some people actually believe that the third son wasn't even Hosea's. Um, because it's, it's not his. Uh, we don't know that for sure. Um, but God is looking pretty merciless right now, is he not? He's, he, he's named one of the kids No Mercy. Like, that's like the opposite of what you would think of when you think of God. And it can be very difficult as people of grace and people who understand to be God, to be a God of grace. It's hard to read this. Because we want to think, God's not like this. God wants to show mercy. God's forgiving. But when you read Hosea chapter 1, it actually says God's not going to have mercy or forgive them at all. That's what it says. But this is very, very important in how you frame the way you read the Bible. And, I, I, and this is, especially when you're reading the Old Testament, this is part of the reason we're going to do this event with Shane uh, in October. Because it's going to be very, very insightful. Because if you don't know how to read the ancient documents like Hosea, then you're going to read, like, you're, you're going to read Hosea 1, which, sets the, which is where the stage is being set. And if you only read that, you're going to get a very false impression of who God is. If you read Hosea 1 and you never get to Hosea 3, where the story culminates in one of the greatest images, and we'll see at the end, of how gracious God truly is, then you're going you're gonna to have a distorted view of God, right? But this is the way that literature was written back then. Because really, quite frankly, it's really good storytelling. And it makes a bigger impact on you, right? It is, it, it's a more, much more accurate picture of grace to first show you what you deserve before showing you what he's actually going to do for you. Because grace is not 
meant to be something that keeps you in your ways. It's meant to be a point of change. It's meant to be something that causes you to convert. It's not an excuse to say the same. I wrote it down like this. Grace will always carry more weight when you know the load that you should be carrying. When you know how heavy this is. When you know what should happen to you. And if you never feel the weight of what it is that you deserve, and if you never see the way that anything you're doing affects anybody else, and you never feel the effect that it's having in your own life, there would never be a reason to stop doing it, would there be? So what God does here through the prophet is he first describes what Israel deserves, what you deserve, what I deserve. Here it is. But ultimately... He does what God always does, what God God does the majority of the time, and he gives us what we do not deserve. The only time you really see God not doing that is when the injustice is just so beyond, and for the sake of everybody else, he does something a little bit drastic. But those are the only instances that you see that. Now, we're going to leave Hosea lingering for just a few minutes, okay? And um, we're going to leave Hosea lingering. He has a wife of whoredom. He has children of whoredom. She keeps cheating on him. Just, that's just what's going on. She keeps going on and doing her thing, right? Uh, and and she's, I have these three kids that basically show how angry God is, right? We're going to leave that in the balance, and then we're going to turn to the New Testament to Matthew 9. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this story. I'm not going to read this one to you. I'm going to share a couple of verses with you. Because when Jesus walked on the earth, it seems... Like, he pretty much always went after the gomers, didn't he? He always went after the people who seemed way too far gone. He meets a woman at the well in John 4 who'd been married five times and now is on her sixth marriage. What does he do? He meets her where she is. In John 8, he meets the woman caught in the act of adultery. What does he do? He rescues her from the Pharisees who want to destroy her. In Matthew 9, you get when, God, when Jesus calls Matthew, his disciple. Okay? Matthew would go on to be... Uh, very instrumental person. Obviously, he wrote a book of the Bible. Uh, but he started off really living a disgusting life as a person who oppressed people. Someone who, um, who what, what, what he did was, he, Matthew was Jewish, and he was, he was a tax collector. He actually, God found, Jesus found him at the tax booth. He was a tax collector, and what he had done as a Jew is he had purchased the rights to tax his own citizens from Rome. So Rome was looking for tax collectors. Uh, Matthew buys the rights to tax his own people so that he, and then he can tax them what Rome wants, and then he can tax them over the top of that whatever he wants so that he can kind of skim a little bit off the top. That's the way that it worked. So really he was a traitor to, to Israel who was being taken over by Rome, and that's what, uh, and he was gaining from it. He was a person who exploited his own people, right? And because of that, that, um, when, when Jesus rescues him and even goes to his house for dinner, all the religious people and the Pharisees, they're looking at Matthew and they're like, why is Jesus doing that? Why is he hanging out with that guy? And Jesus is actually hanging out with a lot of tax collectors and sinners at that time. He's having a party with them. And it's actually at seeing that, that the Pharisees, they, they look at the, Jesus at the table with all these sinners and they ask Jesus' disciples, they're like, dudes, why does your, does your teacher eat with sinners? Why would he do that? And even though he asked the disciples the question, Jesus, very receptive, steps in, and this is what he says. He says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And for me, as someone who has grown up in the church, to read that, 
it's very easy for me to read that and to think, okay, okay, what this is saying is I need not spend all my time with Christians all the time. I need to get out of the four walls. I need to go love people who aren't being loved. That type of thing, right? And that's all true. I should go after broken people. It's all true. But I don't know that that's what he was saying. Because if you read it like that, then you insert yourself into the story, then who does that make you? It makes you somebody who thinks that they don't need a doctor. Doesn't it? Someone who thinks that Jesus is talking to somebody else. He's talking about someone else. And that's a very dangerous place to live. If you use it strictly as a missional verse, you're right for going after the lost, but you may miss what it says about you in your life. See, I used to read it thinking, okay, Jesus is eating with people so that they can join where we're going because we all need to go this place together. It's going to make us more powerful. They're the sick ones. We're the well ones. And now they can get better. We can be one big happy family that doesn't sin anymore. But what if he's actually saying, I don't eat with people who don't think they need me. I only come into the lives who know that without me, they're lost. Guys, it's very, it's impossible to find mercy if you're living in such a way that if it were shown to you, you wouldn't even recognize it. God cannot do any work on the person whose heart doesn't think that they need it. Which is, quite frankly, why religious people are so much further gone than the sinner in a lot of instances. So then Jesus does something fantastic, okay? He strikes another blow to these Pharisees who think they don't need him, and he quotes the prophet Hosea, okay? He quotes Hosea 6.6, and then he tells them this. He says, go learn what this means. He's like, you haven't figured this out yet. Why don't you go learn what this means? And he quotes Hosea 6.6. Educate yourself, guys. Figure out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay? So to a group of people who have built their entire lives, their entire religion around what they do not do, that would have hurt a little bit, wouldn't have. The Pharisees were really good at giving up stuff. They were really good at sacrifice, but it was for all of the wrong reasons. They would fast for weeks, but they didn't treat people like people. They didn't treat people like they had any value unless they had something to offer them, right? They would tithe, but they'd neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. So Jesus is basically telling these guys, he says, look, until you can take your eyes off of what you've given up and put your eye on me... You'll never find me, and you'll never find life. At the heart of it is just the simple truth, guys, that Jesus cares more about the way that you treat people than he does about the things that you give up, thinking that it's going to make you closer to him. What he desires is mercy. Now, and again, I know there's a lot here. Any footnote in any Bible will tell you that Jesus here is quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. Okay? There can be no doubt Jesus is intentionally pointing them back to Hosea in this moment. He's quoting something the Pharisees would have already known. But the thing is, Hosea 6.6 6 actually says something slightly different than this. And I personally think that this actually gives us a wider view of mercy than we had even before it. Because in Matthew 9, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Hosea 6, 6, it says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. See, throughout Hosea, you get the word mercy a whole lot. Uh, like when he says, this daughter's name is no mercy. It's the word raham. It's, it's in there a ton. 
But Hosea 6.6 uses a different Hebrew word. It's the word kased. Kased. Now, the imagery behind the word kased at the root word of this word is a swan. And the concept of kased, uh, in kind of the word picture for it, is the picture of a mother swan who plucks out her own feathers and then she lines the nest, her nest, with her feathers so that her young have a softer place to sleep so they can rest more comfortably. It's the image of a mother giving up her own comfort for her children. One of the most common descriptions of God in the entire Old Testament is this. It says, God, you are abounding in kesed, abounding in steadfast love, loving, loving kindness, in steadfast, lo- in steadfast kindness, loving kindness. That, I wrote that wrong. Um, it's, it's actually a line from Exodus 34. Uh, it's not the first time kesed is used, but it's the first time it's used as this. God, you are abounding in steadfast love or loving kindness. Uh, it's, it's the first way it's used as a phrase about God. In fact, there's a book by John Mark Comer. Uh, it's called God Has a Name. And in this book, he actually, he makes the case for why he believes uh, that, that this passage about God is actually the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. So the writers of the Bible go back to this description of God. God, you're abounding in steadfast love better than anybody, more than any other time in the entire Bible. God, you are abounding in steadfast love. Now in a few minutes we'll have to contextualize Exodus 34 and hopefully it will blow your mind as much as it blows my mind. But, uh, but that's just the reality. It keeps getting quoted over and over and over and over again. More than any other description of God. Now that's amazing, right? But the fact that, God, that Jesus takes the Pharisees back to this, at this party, and the fact that he quotes this verse, right? It's almost as if Jesus was showing us what mercy looks like. Even better than the descriptions that we get of mercy. Even better than just seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. Even better than active compassion. Jesus is saying this is mercy, Giving up something from yourself, your own comfort for the sake of others. Jesus, what did he do? He brought on the ridicule of the religious so that he could accept the sinner. He would later bring on the cross to accept the broken people. God, you are abounding in steadfast love. You give up your own well-being for us, your own comfort for the sake of the children, like a swan who plucks her own feathers and lines her nest with it. So your offspring can rest. That's what God is like. And we view him as being angry. As having no mercy. Because God is loving enough to let us feel it enough that we actually realize that we're doing something wrong. Who wouldn't do that? Otherwise we would never actually change. But God never stays angry. God does get angry, but he's not angry. He doesn't stay angry. He is abounding in steadfast love. Watch this. Back to Hosea. Chapter 1. God is angry. He seems angry, right? Israel's rebellious. They're breaking the covenant. Gomer's unfaithful, of course. Then we get to chapter 2. And this is one element of Hosea that I think a lot of people miss because it's kind of worded strangely in chapter 2. But in Hosea 2, the Bible talks about a time when Gomer's just gone. She takes off. She says, Hosea, I'm out of here. I'm fine. She goes on to other men, just like God knew she would, like Hosea knew she would. She says, I'm going to go after my lovers. 
So Hosea, Gomer leaves Hosea for other lovers, doing the prostitute thing, forgetting about Hosea. And this is what it says. It says that she finds herself in this place wherever she went, and she's getting taken care of. She's like, wow, it's really going well for me here. She had bread, she had water, she had wool, she had flax, she had oil, she had drink, she had it all. And she's satisfied because she thinks that she has what she needs. Like, I don't need Hosea. I'm doing fine here. I got all the, all the drink I need. I got all the flax. I got it all. I got these men who will take care of me, and they take care of me just as much as he did. But then you know what verse 7 and 8 say? It says, there will come a time when Gomer will reach the bottom, right? Those men will leave because anything in this world that is selfish and is evil and is gross, it will always leave you empty. And when, and when that day comes, she says, okay, I'm going back to Hosea. It was better for me there. She's still only thinking about herself. She's saying, well, what can I do? How, what, where's I, where am I going to be more comfortable? But then verse 8 gives what I believe to probably be the most beautiful picture of the gospel in the entire Bible. And we don't even realize that it's there. It says this. It's easy to read over it. It says that the entire time that Gomer was getting taken care of by her lovers, all that oil and wool and flax and drink, all that food, from the beginning, from the time she left Hosea to seek out other lovers, without her even knowing it, the Bible says it was Hosea who was paying everything that she needs everywhere that she went. He provided for her the entire time. It paints this picture of Hosea kind of going behind the scenes, following her at a distance. He's not stalking her. He's just caring for her because he knew that those gross men were never going to do it. So he, he, every chance he gets, when she's not looking, he'd pay her bills. Every chance he could, uh, when she wasn't looking, he'd get her some food. He'd go to those guys and she'd give her money and he'd give him money and say, hey, take care of my wife for me. Remember, verse 5 says, Gomer believed that her lovers were taking care of her. Have you ever felt so far from God? You've just made your own way. You're just off on your own. But yet in the entire time, you, deep down, you know it's not right. You know something's wrong. But something in you just doesn't want to turn back. Yet in the most gracious, amazing way, you're getting these subtle reminders every day that God has not given up on you yet. And now, like in hindsight, you look back on what happened. You see clear as day, Right? Someone was paying your bills. Someone was taking care of you. Someone was carrying you. Someone had their hand on your life even when you were running from him. You don't even recognize it. You don't know where the grace is coming from, yet you know in your heart that someone somewhere is taking care of you even as you endeavor down this broken road. You know, just for instance, last week we did the baptism. We baptized two people in the Detroit River. It was amazing. A whole bunch of us gathered. It was so cold. I checked my phone while we were there. It said 59 degrees, and it was windy, and it was, it was awesome, though. Yet, these, these two women that we baptized, uh, and, and I'm not going to get into their stories. I'm not going to tell it. They already told it last week, but it was so powerful. And they, we, they were stories of redemption, amazing stories. And they're stories that I'll never forget because it's so incredible by what God did. They're People, it's like people can walk on such a dangerous path. And yet, in hindsight, when by the grace of God he makes a way and you're getting baptized and you realize, wow, I'm having new, this is all brand new, it's so obvious that God was carrying them the entire time it was happening, right? He was there the entire time, making sure that they're okay, making sure that it doesn't go too far, making sure that he has his hand on it. And we're hearing stories like that here almost every day. 
Okay, now follow me here. Um, if you could follow on the screen with this. I know this is going to be, for cliff notes, it's a lot of loops. But I want us to turn to Hosea 11 now. Okay? So Hosea 11 says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and, to, um, and, to, and burning offerings to idols. Look at this, though. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and they did not know that I was the one that healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yokes on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They did not know that it was me. It was me who taught them to walk. It was me who fed them. It was me who carried them. It was me who healed them, who picked them up every time that they fell, even though they spit in my face over and over again. And they turned their backs on me and they worshiped other gods. It was me the whole time I carried them. Then look at verse 5 and se- five through 7, uh, and you get what appears to be the wrath of God. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. And that did actually happen for a while. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume their bars and gates and devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they are called out of the Most High, he shall not raise them up. Once again, you have God making Israel feel like they are going to get what they deserve. Till you get to verse 8 and 9. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you that way? Then look at what this says. It says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God says this. He says, my heart recoils. It's a Hebrew word, hapak, and it means to overthrow. Okay? This is the same word that's used when when an army would come, and they would overthrow a city, and they would take it and they would leave it, they ransack it and they'd leave it in a million pieces. God is saying, I'm overturning myself. Overthrowing what I had originally said because I'm merciful. But this is not a word that means that God just simply changed his mind. There is a word for that. But this is important, right? Because when a city gets overthrown, where is it left? It's left in pieces, right? It's left in shambles. It cannot just be put back together again. It can only be rebuilt with new materials. In Exodus 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. The rest of Israel stays down. Moses goes up. He comes back down with the ketubah, the marriage contract, the Ten Commandments. But if you fast forward to Exodus 32, Israel seems to think Moses is taking too long up there on the mountain with God. Doesn't want to be there anymore. So they start getting really anxious. So what they do is they, they gather all of their gold rings and their earrings, and they mold it all together, and they say, let's create a god out of our gold. And they create this god, this golden calf that they worship, and they start worshiping it. And do you know what they say when they worship it? 
these are your gods that brought you out, that brought us out of the land of Egypt. The very first thing that God said in the first contract about him, they're saying about another God. They're doing the next two things written in the ketubah not to do. And God, he's pretty mad about this, right? And he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to start over. God pleads, Moses pleads with God, says, please don't do that. God says, fine, I won't. But then Moses, guys, he comes down from the mountain. He sees it himself, and he's so angry that he takes the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he smashes them into a million pieces right at the foot of the mountain. And they can never be put back together again. And God who was relenting of the disaster he was going to do, and he's choosing to show grace to Israel, once again, he becomes the image bearer of grace. Because you know what he does? Even though the covenant was broken, it was still right. It was still the best thing that could have happened to them. So God tells Moses, go get two more tablets. We'll write it all again. Same terms. Exodus 34, 1. Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, just like the first. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first ones, which you broke. So Moses does that. And the Lord descends in the cloud, and he stood with him there in a cloud. In Exodus 34, 5. And this time, before he lays out the terms, and before he gives us a single commandment, you know what he says? The Lord the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Kassad. Abounding in steadfast love like a mother swan who plucks out her own feathers and lines the nest so that her offspring can rest comfortably. And they start the whole process all over again. They write out the terms, and they're still the same terms, almost like it was the first time. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be my people. It's an awesome thing that I'm going to do with you. Your past doesn't go away. It's, some things are just written into stone. But the love of God, guys, it has this way of just shattering that stone into a million pieces. Because it's already broken anyway, right? And then he tells you the exact same thing. The gifts and calling are irrevocable. I still have a plan for your life. Let's just try this thing again. Because God is the God of second chances. And he's the God of third chances. And he's the God of however many chances. He's the same God that says, how often do I forgive my brother? Seven times or how about 70 times seven all on the same day? You never stop forgiving. Because that's what God is like. And he's not promising you that he's going to make the past go away. But he will give you a tomorrow. He will give you a new tablet. He will give you a hope for a future. What he gives you is mercy, and he gives you steadfast love. And lastly, Hosea chapter 3. It's short, so I'm just going to read to you the whole thing. It says this, And the Lord said to me, Go again, Hosea, and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turned to other gods and love cakes of raisins. 
So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leth and a barley. And, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days and you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And so also I will do the same for you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. But afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. In the end, Gomer is abandoned by her lovers, and she's put up for sale. But Hosea buys her back, and he makes her his wife. And in that day, the going rate for a slave, research history will tell you, is about 30 shekels of silver. Hosea buys her for 15, plus a few other things that either might have made it close to there, maybe, maybe not. But the point is, she was so low at this point that it was cheap. It was cheap. Nobody wanted her. She reached the absolute bottom. She was as low as it gets. Hosea, we know he would have sold the farm to save her if he had to, but he didn't have to because of how far she had fallen. And he takes her and he redeems her. And he doesn't treat her like a slave like she's being sold as. He takes her back as his wife. And he says, you're mine and I'm yours. You have nobody else, I have nobody else. No other men, no other women, no more adultery, no more cheating. There's full restoration in this house from here on out. See, for Hosea, love cost him a lot. But every time he was willing to pay that price. And for Jesus, love has a cost. Guys, Jesus was the final word of God redeeming Israel. He saved them through bringing destruction upon himself. He was a flesh and blood manifestation of the same love of God who had forgiven his people over and over again every single time that they betrayed him. He has shown grace through his pain that we caused him. He still loved us. God himself understands every detail of what Hosea went through because he went through it himself. He went through it with Israel. He went through it with Jesus. He lost his son. Jesus had to be, lose his life. It's as if ultimately Hosea, he learned what it means to love when it hurts in order to realize that's what you like, God. You love even when it hurts. That even when someone you love so much does something so much to cause you so much harm, you still love them and you still pursue them and you still never give up on them because there's nothing in this world that is more important than that person finding life. How many of us live our lives that way? Where we're willing to lose something in order that somebody else could gain something better. Where we're willing to feel pain so that we could be a more effective witness to the world of the greatest story ever told. That we'd be willing to be used by God even if it first meant having to empathize with God and understand what he went through and understand the example that he gets, even if it means taking off our glasses and seeing the world through his eyes, through the eyes of the one who loved you so much that in your most broken state, he laid down his perfect life for yours. How many would be willing to go through whatever it would take to say, me too, God, me too. I get it, but they're worth it. The broken people are worth it. 
and the broken people have my heart because they have your heart. Me too, God. Do whatever it takes to make my life reflect your heart. You know, Isaiah 57, uh, 15, it says that God lives with the lowly and the contrite uh, in order to revive their spirit. The literal says he lives with people who are crushed. God lives with people who are crushed, whose lives have been shattered. And if that's where God lives, that's where we ought to be living. If those are the people that Jesus died for, then those are the people that we ought to exist for. And you know what? We're going to take communion in just a minute. And I want to explain something to you about communion today. Uh, today, this Tuesday night is Yom Kippur. It's the, it's the Jewish holiday, the Day of Atonement. And it's, it's the day that all the sins of the whole people are taken care of for the whole year. Okay? And we believe that that was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is Yom Kippur. He was the final, he was the final flesh and blood sacrifice needed to atone our sins. But people ask all the time, why do you take communion every week? And why do you ask questions or ask people, like, hey, a lot of times people say this. They'll say, you only do this if you're in a relationship with Jesus. And let me explain that to you because maybe we won't say that anymore. I want to say it this way instead. By taking communion, you are acknowledging that you are in a relationship with Jesus. Okay? I'm not trying to prohibit you. I'm trying to help you understand. Okay? Paul says, don't take this in a manner that is unworthy. And so most of us think that that means, okay, I can't come, to, I, if, I, if I don't have, if I had a bad week, if I sinned a lot, if I messed up a whole bunch of stuff, I can't do it because I'm unworthy to take this. But that is the opposite of what it is saying. What it is saying is, don't take this if you don't think that you need it. Don't take this if you can't recognize what it's actually doing in your life because that is what the thing is. It is, it is a, the communion, the, the bread and the wine. It is, a, it is a image of what Jesus did for you. So why would anybody take that and make that acknowledgement if they did not believe that? It is a confession of your love for Jesus. Okay? So when you take communion, when we bring that out and you take the little bread and you dip that into the fake wine, that what you are doing is you are saying, Jesus Christ, I acknowledge that you laid your life down for me and I'm taking all of it. You took it all and I'm going to serve you with my life. That's communion.